0: All right, Digital Wildcatters, we have we have like a great achievement of technology. Restream has kicked Colin out. This is so <laughs> awesome.
1: Chuck has to do the intro because I didn't even know when we went live. It's giving me a 404 error, so I can't see everyone's comments. Uh, Chuck will be DJing today and taking care of comments, but we got a special guest with us today. We got the one, the only, the legendary. Mark Myers joining us. We had so much fun with Kurt Coburn last week. We're like, hey, shit, we should get guests on here more often. So, uh, Mark's co-host of the I'm show. I'm in the
2: drive-by chair, so uh, <laughs> you, you, you've moved down the telegenic scale. I can yeah. that, so. <laughs> right.
0: we, we got plenty of ways to go with us. Yeah, we that. got a long ways <laughs> <laughs> on the pinnacle. Yeah. Now, this is number three, right? Is this your third? BD? Third, third BDE. there we go.
1: No, All right, BD. let's do it. All right, what do we got on All the right, uh, dock? So let's today? go
0: number one. Hey, Mark, why don't you tell us what happened, but basically Saudi came out and said something to the effect of, hey, United States, we're like happy to cut production
2: because we don't like $90 crude. What the, did they say and what did it mean? Javier Blas had in his email this morning uh, a summary of the written interview that ABS did with um, with Bloomberg and basically saying that. They don't like the disconnect, the increasing disconnect between the physical and financial markets and crude. And so basically coming back out and saying we, we reserve the option or the right, OPEC plus reserves the option or the right to cut production, which you can take a number of ways. Um, certainly, um, as I think about it over the long run of having been an OPEC observer is the thing that's really bullish to me at least on the margin is if there were more concern on OPEC plus as part about impact on demand of a production cut, a real production cut, um, then I think you might not have seen such an aggressive uh, move on, on, on Saudi's part.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've always found it kind of like comical that people think that OPEC has real time demand response, right? Of, <laughs> oh, we're going to cut back. We're going to increase production. I mean, I think us oil guys know that if they're going to increase production, it means they're going to go out and drill more wells, which there's a long cycle that comes along with that. It's not just, oh, we've got a ton in storage that we're going to release. So I always kind of find some of these remarks to be more um, just driving narrative through headlines than what actually matches with their capabilities and reality. But that's just well, that's my take on it.
0: No, to that point, I want to throw up this chart real quick. This is rigs running in the... Uh, in the kingdom. And if you look back kind of 95 to 2005, it was call it 18 to 20 rigs. And I think if you went back 1995 to whenever, it was always, you know, call it 15 to 20 rigs running. And, you know, prices fell in 08, 09, and they still had call it 40, 45 rigs running. The crash was Thanksgiving of 2014. And from that point, they had 80 rigs running to, I mean, literally until the pandemic, 60 rigs running. So my whole thing is, if you have three to four million barrels a day of excess capacity like you advertise, you're not running that many rigs. I mean, I understand running some rigs, oh, that well went down, we got to redrill it or whatever. But and we know these numbers aren't right because they don't ever accurately report how many rigs are there and all that, but yeah. directionally just the fact you're using three to four times the rigs historically
1: you've used, you don't have it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that, that's what I was saying. is like you can say one thing. Well,
2: but- it, you know, Gawar, the crown jewel is 70 years old plus now. And, you know, that's, that's not a spring chicken. If you look at some of the giant oil fields around the world over the last century plus, so. Yeah, there's a there's a there's an intensity that comes along with that in terms of being able to maintain. Um, I was in the middle of Simmons and Company back when Matt was putting together Twilight in the Desert, and a big part of his thesis was the fact that you know drilling intensity was going up.
1: Yeah, so what's what's census on BDE? Uh, so Sopec full of shit. Are they uh <laughs> well, no, no, they, they have I mean them. I mean they announced
0: their production targets you know how long ago a year ago, 18 months ago and they haven't come close. I mean they've missed it every month kind of since then and it's been others I mean Saudis hit their targets so far, but I mean they just don't have it. so I mean we we're we're staring off don't the edge juice. of a cliff no I think. juice yep
1: they just don't have it.
0: so righty. <laughs> what Happy days are here again. I don't know what we're gonna do about it. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, you know, shout out to Energy Cynic because you know I love Energy Cynic on Twitter because he stays true to his name. Be the most bullish environment, and he's cynical.
2: <laughs> um, you need that. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> me and him, I think. I think Energy Cynic likes me, and I think like we're a good balance because I'm eternal an optimist, and he's eternal. Cynic. And, uh, anyways, I th- he put out a tweet, I don't know, this morning or yesterday, and was just talking about how he, he just can't wrap his head around bull thesis on uh, commodities. But, you know, my thing here is as long as there's, you know, he looks at it really from a uh, demand side, and he just thinks that there's increasingly demand destruction across all of these countries. People are using less energy um but i just think that the supply side kind of is outpacing it because i don't think that i don't think that opec has any juice to to put out i don't think that i just don't think that there's a ton of supply what's y'all's take on the supply demand i I
2: just i would just sum it up like this I, i think what we've seen in terms of the measurable demand contraction or destruction does not proportionally match the the bearish rhetoric, which ties back into really what the Saudis were talking about, as a motivation to to uh, close the gap in the physical and financial markets, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen at a certain price point. Clearly, um, because we've seen it before, it's just that the physical markets, I think, belie a little bit of the or the narrative is a bit out of ahead, ahead of that on demand. But always got to be mindful of it.
0: Well, you know, Brad Olson's take on it when he came on the podcast the other day couple of months ago was at three times EBITDA I'm not incented to go create more production as a publicly traded company in the United States and so you've got one of two things that are going to happen if we want to have increased uh, production out of the United States multiples are going to have to double go from three to six times EBITDA or prices are going to have to double mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the two because right now your incentive is to maintain flat production and send money back to
1: your shareholders. So, yeah, it's uh, always interesting to see how the economics and finances drive behavior incentivize behavior. So I like how, I like how you frames that. Hey, either give us a higher multiple or um, you know, prices, higher prices will incentivize people to drill a well.
0: I loved his take about did all these CEOs go from being idiots in the shale revolution to geniuses today? <laughs> no, it's just incentive change. So, is, all right, I look, I'm looking down at Restream. I look ghostly white here. That's I think just, it's, uh, it's I some, think it's the Astros jersey, but I'm going to the Astros you game get, tonight. You need to get so. some sun. There we go. I need to be out. <laughs> all right, story number two, University of Texas is poised to overtake Harvard as the largest university endowment in the United States. All of this is driven by oil revenue because the university of Texas in effect owns uh, minerals over 2.1 million acres, basically in the Permian basin. Let's say you frack.
1: Well, let's first talk about what university lands are there's probably a lot of people that aren't familiar with them especially if you're not in texas or you're not in the oil and gas industry and i didn't do any research to actually like get factual information here so uh take take this with a grain of salt but essentially university lands um i think back in 1870 around that time uh texas dedicates grants these lands in west texas to the universities uh primarily uh university of texas and texas a and m and east
0: texas so you you, you basically because they wind up with some timber land in there too got so, you yeah.
1: um so anyways you know huge chunks of land out in west texas i don't know who operates them anymore i think uh back in the day pioneer natural resources um operated a lot of them. But anyways, the uh, mineral royalties from this production goes straight to the universities. And so there's an article on Bloomberg, I believe it was, that came out yesterday that said University of Texas Endowment Fund is poised to take over Harvard and become the richest university because of the increase in oil and gas prices. And so um, what did you want? You want our take on that? Is that what you want? Is that what she asked? Sure.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, got- you know the running joke, don't you? Because the University of Texas got two-thirds of the land and A&M got one-third of the land. Uh, what did that mean? It meant Texas A&M got to choose first. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Chuck's jokes today. Go. That yeah. was, that was we got Alza. a few We got a few comments in here from Jay. Say shout-out to the Permian Basin, and then Tracy said hook-em horns. So we got some longhorns on the podcast today. I'm not a Longhorns fan. Actually, I didn't go to any university, so I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of neutral in all of it. I think A&M's they, a a cult. UT. It's cool, Texas Tech, Red Raiders are Red Lubbock. Raiders. Just yeah, it's <laughs> Lubbock. I was born in <laughs> Lubbock. I can't <laughs> say anything bad about it. But I mean,
2: this is the time horizon of of what is known as ESG or responsible investing. I, I would assume that part of the relative underperformance, if we can assume that that's driving the the. the the UT fund overtaking uh, the Harvard endowment is, is a timing related to huge outperformance in the energy complex, particularly uh, traditional hydrocarbon, both resources and equities.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So Harvard, Harvard went anti-fossil fuels divested, did all Mm -hmm. that. And so their endowment's down this year. And I think the university
2: of Texas is making something like $6 million a day
1: yeah. I.
0: loyalty payments. So on that note. On a
2: combined what thirty I think the endowments what thirty billion.
0: So so Texas is at forty two point nine billion oh. and then Harvard is at fifty three point two billion. That was a last
2: month number. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So
1: that's actually an interesting thing that I didn't think about that Harvard's um You know, with their divestment in oil and gas, and all the Ivy League schools divesting, that you know they don't get any of the upside of oil and gas or commodities. But let's uh, let's talk about a couple of things here because one, um, yeah, I was just reading that comment there. We'll we'll get to it here in a second. I put out a tweet and a LinkedIn post this morning uh, because I've never I never thought university lands is a good deal for any Texas citizens. One. I don't think endowment funds should be as big as they are at universities. These are becoming massive profit centers while tuition continues to increase. And so this isn't just for Texas school systems. This is across everywhere. I have a friend that's a very successful entrepreneur. He came from Yale and he fucking hates how big Yale's endowment fund is. I mean, there's just no reason for these endowment funds to be that big. And then you talk about Canceling school debt—it's like fuck that. Get these and in- you want to cancel school debt. Get these endowment funds to to cover the bill. But anyways, I'm getting on my soapbox here. Let's talk about university lands. You know, I think that as Texas citizens, these these revenues should flow back to the citizens either directly or indirectly through the investment of infrastructure. And you look at where these revenues come from. They come from. West Texas, and you look at West Texas schools. West Texas schools continuously fail. I grew up in these schools, so you know, use that as some anecdotal evidence. Um, continuously fail and underperform uh, compared to the rest of the schools in Texas. And Texas ranks 43rd in education for the United States. It's a low fucking bar, and West Texas schools underperform compared to that. And so, I think it's really disappointing when you see revenues from oil and gas leases that uh, were granted by the state flow to the universities instead of to the schools that, um, you know, that really, when you look at, you know, Midland School District, Ector County, um, and then any other smaller school districts, you know, around RN, um, et etc. I mean, they're just poor schools, poor infrastructure. Um don't pay the teachers well. And then those teachers are getting pulled into the oil fields. And so I think it's pretty disappointing to see that no one's really talking about how that money can better serve. Uh, the yeah, I citizens think I of recently Texas.
2: heard a, an anecdote. I can't recall precisely what it was, but uh, a school district in West Texas was, was unable to field a high school level physics teacher, right? That that's twofold. That's one opportunity cost of being a teacher over going to be a tech for an oil and gas company and two is, you know, the ability to, to, to fund the program. Yeah. And, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about it, more equitable distribution of the endowment that we all have in Texas as, as a function of the, or as a result of the resources that we've had for
1: 120 years. Yeah. I mean, look at Alaska. I mean, I'm sure Alaska's, uh, uh, endowment and it has issues with it, just like any any well, the ran the, the of difference in the permanent
2: fund. I spent quite a bit of time in Alaska a long time ago. Um, the difference in the permanent fund in Alaska, I believe, is still the case, is that every resident gets a distribution, man, woman, and child, every year, mm-hmm. based upon the dividend, uh, or yeah, the dividend payout of the fund, which has obviously been under pressure over the last couple of decades because the North Slope has been declining.
1: Yeah. And
2: so uh, that is more of a general direct to the, the, the citizens or the residents of the state. In fact, a little sidebar, when I was on the Valdez project, we had some non-residents who were spending a lot of time in Alaska thinking about, hey, how do I establish Alaska residency so I can <laughs> yeah. reach right? no, for sure. Uh-huh.
1: I mean, the North Slope is a wild place and it's like, I don't feel like the North Slope is part of the United States. I mean, <laughs> no, the 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 drilling contractors, I mean, you got Doyon up there and they hire, I mean, residents only. You have to be a native uh, to work for Doyon and so they're very, I mean, the, the oil field benefits the people that live there and that grew up on the land and anyways, that's, uh, you know, understand university lands. Like I'm not taking a dig at university lands as an organization. I mean, there's not, look, this was put in place. what 100, just an 140, moment. 150 years ago. But I think now with these endowment funds, just bloating up, it's okay. How can we better use those funds to invest in we the got, uh, future of Texas? We got a good comment from uh, John Mank. Who's
0: talking about maybe endowments, if they're going to be tax free, they should have to spend a mandatory percentage each year. I, I, the libertarian could even live with that because I mean, in effect, you've got all this money just sitting on the sideline growing where it's so incredibly inefficient how we give in the United States to charity. Cause we all give to our university and our kids school and talk about spots that don't really need it that much, but I will close it with this. All those longhorns out there that make fun of my rice owls on beating us in football <laughs> every year. I'd always say if you can't build a national contender every year with the taxing authority <laughs> of the state of Texas, backing you up, you don't deserve to play football.
1: I think that's a valid, uh, yeah. valid criticism. I, I don't see the, the flaw in the logic there. So, gotcha. all right, next story. Um, You know, I'm sure over on Twitter and LinkedIn, I'll be hearing a lot of comments later on that post that I put. So looking forward to hearing everyone's insight and take on that. Uh, Next post, what do we got? We got some geothermal news. So,
0: yeah, give us quick on geothermal, but then I'm going to ask you to get your guy to come in and chat with us. Maybe he'll do it next
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yesterday it was announced that Fervo Energy – Rising star in the geothermal world closed a 138 million dollar Series C round. Um, was led by uh, DCVC, and so uh, Farvo Energy uh, CEO is a buddy of mine, uh, Tim. And Tim's really interesting cat because he was a oil and gasian's. Oil and, gas. An oil and gas completions engineer uh, at BHP, I believe. And then went to Stanford and um, there developed a uh, thesis around geothermal energy and really is using things that we learned in horizontal drilling in the geothermal world. And one of those things, uh, I had breakfast with him uh, several months back. And he's like, yeah, before Fervo, all geothermal was open hole. They didn't even think about using casing. And thing about using casing is that you have flow restrictions so you really a lot of uh, engineering that goes into that but um really really big fans of him and fervo just because they're taking oil and gas knowledge and applying it to geothermal and one cool thing about them is that um I probably have the details wrong on this deal, but they've essentially done some co-locations like they announced a partnership with Google uh, sometime last year, I believe, where uh, Google is buying power from one of their facilities and so they can actually go uh, find a place. Poke a couple of holes in the ground, develop geothermal energy, and then sell it directly to uh, corporates that want twenty four seven clean power. So, um, pretty cool to see this. I am interested. One, we need to get uh, Tim. Um, Tim, if you're listening, this will be my ask for you. I want you to come on the show next week, call in, and uh, get five minutes of your time to talk about Fervo. Um, one thing I do find interesting is that they position this as a Series C. And so they go like the traditional VC funding. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to know how the, the workings of, of that are. Um, Well, I want to
0: know if the, the inflation reduction act actually helped
1: this, you know? So Tim actually gave me uh, so I was kind of, I was bitching the other day on Twitter and (laughs) and, uh, someone from DOE tweeted out that, um, DOE was uh, investing 160 million dollars into geothermal, and they're really grandstanding. And so I wasn't so much um, I wasn't so much attacking the amount as the posturing, because look, in oil and gas, you know, 160 million dollars isn't shit to drill some wells, it's right? A pad. I mean, Yeah. It's a pad. Yeah. And so when you're talking about extremely intense capital um, expenditure projects, it's just not that much. And so that's what I was kind of going after. But Tim replied and gave me some pretty good insight. He says that at Fervo, they've personally seen a five to one ratio of private money versus public money. So the more public money that comes in from the government, um, from the DOE investing in the space, you can expect a five X return from the private markets. So, um, that kind of that changed my perspective a little bit where he's saying, Hey, look at this as the government using it as a catalyst to in, increase more private market um, investments. So, so Tim's got to come on. We got to, we got to deep dive that.
2: Cause yeah. I, I want to learn more about geo. Uh, yeah. Just anyway. Yeah. I, I think one of the, you know, your original point that it's good to see that there's a lot of direct transferability of uh, skills and experience. Uh, Geothermal is probably the most, obvious one but just in terms of of energy systems and the engineering that goes around that particularly if you're involving places that you can't see yeah right like downhole. yeah
1: yeah i know i mean and hydraulics
2: that you mentioned it was all thought of before probably oversimplifying as open hole and now you've got all kinds of cool stuff that you can do with well, I want to know why just and... old well bores can't be used.
1: Well, here's what. So, so you, know? you know, something interesting. When I, I first even have to re-drive. When I first started diving into geothermal, two or three years back, um, I heard something about Enron using geothermal, and I asked Jeff Skilling. I said, "Hey, did you guys do geothermal projects?" He's like, "Yeah, we're doing geothermal back in the '70s." He's like, "You know, it was always promise infinite energy," and he's like, "It was a money pit." He's like, "You would drill a well, and it would get plugged up, and wouldn't flow." But as we're sitting there talking, his eyes lit up, and he's like, you know what? He's like, with the advancements in horizontal drilling, he's like, geothermal might make sense now. And that's what's really opening up geothermal um, is just, I mean, oil and gas, the advancements that we've had in drilling technology. And what's cool about, you know, what Tim and Fervo are doing is that they're really going after um, these shallow assets where we can take the technology that we have today. But the long-term future of geothermal is, hey, we need to go deeper into hotter spots. And guess what? When you start going deeper, you start running into mechanical limitations, uh, tools breaking. And we've done a lot of uh, technology advancements in places like the Haynesville, where you have 300 to 400 degree downhole temperatures and have really developed some tools. And now you see companies in the geothermal space that are trying to drill with lasers and shit like that to bypass some of that. So... Um, the nerd the downhole engineering nerd in me comes out when you start talking about that stuff because it's, sure be cool. it's gonna be for you it's going be this weird
0: thing of let's utilize everything we've learned in oil and gas but then let's suspend all our beliefs because we're not doing exactly the same thing and we probably have to look at it a fresh way so. yeah yeah so,
2: so can we now call hot water a discovery there yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make some tea yeah <laughs>
0: All right, Buffett got approved last week to buy 50% of Oxy. My only hot take on this is Buffett, yeah, he's a genius, all that. I, I do have a theory about Buffett in that if we filled Rice Stadium and we had everybody flip a coin, somebody would flip heads 20 straight times. I mean, <laughs> right? So I don't I mean, Buffett's smart. I don't want to detract from it and all that. But just remember for all this, oh, he's so smart, he's buying oxy. This needs, you know, we all need to do this. He sold all of the oxy he got from the Anadarko deal in August of twenty twenty, all his common shares. Oh he yeah. still had his preferred, you could say it was portfolio management, but could have seen back then, hey, nothing cures low oil prices like low oil prices. I just need to hang in there a little more. So
1: yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I'm not in a position to uh critique warren buffett so i don't have a lot of a lot of thoughts on it i do think it's interesting does he have any other oil and gas holdings i mean like upstream uh producers or is oxy the only one that he focuses on i think that's it he's got
0: mid-american which is the, the utilities and stuff yeah, and they yeah. do some
1: midstream yeah like i know he has you know uh rail cars and shit like that but i don't that's know that's if- kind of energy yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> I mean, it's, upstream. That's amazing how the gas gas pipelines producers. have. Been yeah. Pipelines, right? yeah. yeah. Um, I just think I, the reason I was asking that is because I think that it's interesting that he's yeah. honed in on Oxy and not any other operators.
2: I, I'm, I'm not in a position to, to speculate or critique the portfolio management because I'm no longer one of those. Um, <laughs> but, but I will say it's an interesting uh, data point with respect to kind of time horizon of, of, how we see this all playing out as, as really a valuation opportunity. Right. And Mm -hmm. obviously he's got the preferred alongside that. And I I think it probably was a portfolio management move um, and a bit of a risk off trade. Um, But I I do think it's positive from, you know, a a true long-term value investor standpoint that, uh, you, you've got a long runway. Ahead That's of that. what I was
1: going to say. I mean, if you're investing in the space over the next 10 years, you probably have to take that as a positive signal, how would assume. And, well, and
2: it's going to be interesting to see, I was talking about this with a, a former PM peer uh, the other day is there, there's going to be more and more capital as valuations stay relatively compressed seeking, you know, opportunity that isn't encumbered or restricted by a policy mandate. Um, I think, you know, there's smatterings in the retail and uh, space of anecdotes that I hear, and then exposure to you know more direct leverage to hydrocarbons, um, and I don't have to have you know a big committee uh, to run the gauntlet to to approve that investment. So I you know I think there's you're starting to see some some movement on that side of looking for opportunities while while uh, oil and gas valuations stay so compressed
0: well david ramson woods take on it was basically if you were going to free someone from esg in the energy space who would you free you would free someone that has a lot of oil and a lot of possibility for carbon capture right and that is oxy yeah that's
1: what i was going to say uh hazen just commented here and said that uh, they also hold a bunch of chevron uh obviously they're more vertically integrated not just cmp but they have a huge stake there and what I was thinking about was, you know, Oxy is a pretty unique company because of the efforts that they have in carbon capture. And look, I've, you know, I was busting them a couple of years ago on the Anadarko deal. Um, but what they do on the carbon capture side is actually pretty interesting. And I know some some tech founders that are working with them um, probably can't say it uh, publicly, but um, they do some pretty cool forward thinking uh, stuff there. So And injecting gas
2: back in the ground is you know, legacy skill yeah. among oil and gas companies. So there's
1: another one. That's, I was talking to someone in oil and gas. They're like, this is the best thing ever. We extracted all of this and now we get to inject it back in. Back. <laughs> yeah, we created the problem and then get to get to fix it. And so, yeah, we're pretty good at injecting um, as well as extracting. All right, Colin. We
0: haven't even told you we do have a Finger of the Week this week.
1: Oh wow! There we go. I, this was a surprise. I came back I from don't... Europe
0: and we didn't do Finger of the Week because I was in such a good mood. Um, last uh... last week we kind of cheated. I mean, to give it to Paul McCartney, <laughs> just so I could tell the stupid story about Pete Best getting fired. But this week we're back to true, bitter, right. grumpy, right. oil and gas defending Finger of the Week. Let's see who it is. Our boy Justin Trudeau—he's back. He's making his—he's making his move on Elizabeth Warren for finger of the week. But a <laughs> great thing popped up on uh, Twitter this week. Somebody posted like a two-minute video of Trudeau's motorcade, and it's like take a drink every time you count a car. And you're drunk, passed out before Trudeau's car even shows up. You know, was
1: this uh, was his his trip down to Costa Rica? Mon-
0: Montreal. This was this was a Montreal. Oh, because stop didn't he just take doing... a
1: vacation to Costa Rica? He did. And people were
0: he private jet. Yeah, he, private he private jet.
1: And look, I'm never gonna shame someone for taking a private jet. I, I was gonna put this out on Twitter yesterday because everyone's been shaming Elon Musk and Kylie Jenner and look when i'm wealthy enough to have a private jet i'm riding a private jet i've grown up broke and poor too long and uh, i'm not going to be shamed for that so i'm not going to shame these people for it either well you know what i'll (laughs) just say it doesn't suck (laughs) chuck chuck (laughs) Chuck misses his private jet he tells me all the time i've got a little model of it did y'all see everyone was uh busting up elon musk over it yesterday because apparently his plane took a nine minute flight um But yeah, yeah, but to be fair, I mean, I'm sure they reposition planes all the time, too. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know if he was on it or not, but
0: I'll just fess up because I've tried to be (laughs) honest and genuine in my podcasting career. One time flew into uh, John Wayne Airport, which is kind of down in Orange County. And the whole reason was I was meeting with UC Irvine. They were an investor. So I went and pitched the board. The plane may or may not have flown and dropped a friend off at a Van Ice Airport, which is kind of northern Los Angeles, came back, picked me up, and then took me to Van Ice Airport. <laughs> and it was because the traffic would have been an hour and a half, two hours in Los Angeles, even though it's 20 some odd miles but I did that in the uh, the PJ.
1: So I have a story that I think is a great story. I heard this firsthand. Clayton Williams is down at his ranch in West Texas, wants bacon for breakfast, doesn't have any bacon, so he sends the private jet to make a run and go pick up some bacon for him. I'm like, that's when you know you're a baller. You can send the PJ out for some bacon. <laughs> so bacon, I don't shame people for out. that at all. No. And
2: I drove the Raptor down here from South Dallas this morning. So. Yeah. <laughs> and it is
1: the 6.2. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, that, that was a fair uh, finger of the week, and it's, our finger of the week seems to uh, kind of cycle between three people. So. <laughs> 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 but anyways, uh, guys, if you haven't signed up for Fuse, uh, tickets are on sale for Fuse. Uh, Tim Latimer from Fervo Energy will actually be speaking um, at Fuse, so I'll see if we can get him on the show next week uh, if his schedule allows. But if not, come catch him at Fuse in October. Uh, make sure to share this podcast share it with a friend, share it on LinkedIn, share it on Twitter, help us out. And we will catch you guys next week, 10 30 AM on Tuesday.
2: Anything else? Thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks, dude.